Amen. Well, we're in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 25. Should have an outline there somewhere on your table, and uh, I'm going to be reading uh, verses one. Well, the, the whole chapter, so you can follow along in your Bibles. Um, and this is King Amaziah. And the next one. Uh, so Second Chronicles chapter 25, beginning. In verse 1, Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. And as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king his father. But he did not put their children to death, according to what was written in the law, in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not die because of their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Verse 5, Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and sent them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. <clears throat> he mustered those 20-year-olds, and upward, and found that they were 300,000 choice men, fit for war, able to handle a spear and a shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. Verse 7, but a man of God came to him, which means a prophet, came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel and all these Ephraimites. But go, act, and be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? And the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Verse 10, Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger because they were going to miss out on all the spoils of war. So they uh, were, were mad about that. But verse 11, But Amaziah took courage and led out his people and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir, and the men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of the rock and threw them down from the top of the rock, and they were all dashed into pieces. That's, that's a lot of people. <laughs> uh, verse 13, but the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, in other words, the, the guys from Israel that he, he didn't hire, um, not letting them go with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to uh, Beth and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. So they figured, hey, Amaziah is going with his army away from Judah, so now's our prime time. He won't let us go with him to war, so we're going to miss out on the spoils, so we'll go get the spoils from his own people. Verse 14, after Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir, here we go again, and set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people you did 
who, who did not deliver their own people from your hand. But as he was speaking, the king said to him, in other words, he, he interrupted the prophet, have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, the son of uh, Jehoahaz, uh, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Am Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You say, see, I have struck down Edom, and your heart has filled you with boastfulness or pride. But now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But King Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the, God, the, the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth uh, Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. Every man fled to his home, and Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash. It's a different Joash, by the way. They, they're, they're the same name, but they're different guys. The son of uh, uh, Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and returned to Samaria. Verse 25, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of uh, Jehoiaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah from the first to the last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish, and they put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Um, tonight we're going to look at Amaziah, a man who has a, basically a half-hearted commitment. And we'll see how that applies to our own faith as well. I think there's nothing worse really than Christians or believers uh, who are Christian in name only, uh, but they're only half-hearted believers. They're not really serious about their faith. Uh, they don't have any convictions. Um, there's nothing distinctive about their lives. They just sort of exist. Maybe they go to church once, twice, three times a, a month. Um, but I know personally, I don't want to be that kind of Christian, and I don't think you do either. And the life of King Amaziah tells you why you don't. Um, he was really what you would say a half-hearted um, believer. He was someone who was half, half, one foot in, one foot out, you might say. He was straddling the fence. He was trying to get 
the best of both worlds. He was willing to compromise to please whoever he was around at the time. And um, he wound up, really, as you see here, with a, a wasted life, and he accomplished very little. Um, one commentator says, His epitaph could have easily read, Here lies King Amaziah, the half-hearted. <laughs> oh, hum. The chronicler put it this way in verse 2, and he, he did right in the sight of the Lord, and what does it say? Yet not with his whole heart, right? And so his life teaches us really that half-hearted commitment, whether it be to the God of Israel or to, to Christ in our day and age, half-hearted commitment results in inevitable, inevitable ruin. In other words, it's going to come sooner or later. And we're not going to take time to read it, but the parallel account over in 2 Kings chapter 14 gives us a clue to his character. In verse two, it says, or verse 3, it says this, And he did write in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all that Joash his father had done. And you remember his father Joash, we talked about him last week, the good boy who went bad. Right, started off good, but boy, fell off the cliff there at the end. It didn't, didn't do well at all. And the central aspect of Joash's faith was that it wasn't his own. He was living out the faith of his parents and everybody else around him, but it wasn't his own. He didn't own his own faith. He wrote on the, the coattails of uh, uh, Jehoiada, the, the priest. And um, as soon as Jehoiada died, what happened? Joash went off the rails. The priest was there to keep him in line. And as soon as that, that priest, Jehoiada, died, Joash went south. Um, he himself never walked in the reality of the Lord. And his son, Amaziah, basically learned just from his dad and followed in his dad's footsteps. He did some good things, as we see, but he also did some bad things. And his life was not fully committed to the Lord. Um, he never really confronted the sin that was in his life, the pride and whatnot as a leader. He never got serious about God. And so we're going to look at the portrait here tonight of this half-hearted commitment of what it looks like in Amaziah's life, but also how we can apply it to our own lives. And so let's look at this thumbscale sketch of Amaziah. And uh, there's seven things here I want us to see. Uh, seven kind of strands of half-heartedness that we should try to avoid at all, at all cost. And the first one there is listed for you. Half-heartedness means a little bit of obedience. When you're living for Christ in a half-hearted way, or you're living for God in a half-hearted way, that means part of the time you'll be obedient. Just a little bit of obedience. Um, so you look at Amaziah's life. He executed his father's murderers. That was okay, but... At least he obeyed the Mosaic law rather than the common practice of the kings in the day. They would kill everybody. Well, Amaziah said, well, I'm not going to kill her. I'm not going to kill their children because that's forbidden in God's law. And so he didn't kill their sons. But in verse 10, if you look down there at verse 10, we find him obeying the prophet, right? The man of God comes to him and, and tells him, but only after questioning him. So you can see, he's kind of like trying to discover, okay, where can I obey God and where can I not? But later he decides, he decides to kind of dabble in idolatry and he tells the prophet in verse 16, basically, you know what, shut up. 
or your head's going to be on a platter. I'm not going to listen to this. And uh, he may have been angry because even though he obeyed the first prophet, he still suffered a loss in verse 13. Maybe he thought, hey, I obeyed God, but look at what happened. It didn't turn out the way I thought it would. And after his victory over Edom, he was not following the Lord, the Bible says. He, he, he was following um, the worldly wisdom and the worldly convention. And where did that lead him? In verse 12, we read it. It says he took these men, 10,000 of them, and pushed them off a cliff. <laughs> I mean, that's just needless death. That's, God didn't tell him to do that. And so Amaziah's life was marked by a little bit of obedience, but not complete obedience. That doesn't mean we have to be perfect. Obviously, we can't be. But like Rehoboam, remember that, he suffered from the peril of partial obedience. And uh, some people say, well, isn't a little bit of obedience um, better than none? I mean, that's how we think, right? If we just obey God a little bit, then that's better than not obeying him at all. I would say that's debatable, frankly. Um, if a man claims to be a Christian, a little bit of obedience can be a dangerous thing, right? You can look at them and like the Pharisees, right? Uh, it's just enough to congratulate yourself that you're okay in the New Testament. They looked at themselves and said, look at us, you know. Uh, but it's not the radical depend, uh, repentance that, that Jesus required of them that leads to eternal life. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your own members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members then that your whole body go to hell. And so it's, it's just enough to let, you know, partial obedience is just enough to let other people identify you as a Christian. But it's not enough to commend the faith to them. They look at you and they see you kind of as a hypocrite. You're saying one thing, but then they catch you doing something else. So out, outsiders would look at somebody who's half-heartedly living for Christ and they say, you know what? If this guy is a Christian and he lives like that, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. <laughs> a lot of times that's, that's the case. You know, we, we, we come to church on Sunday, we come to church throughout the week, and then we hang out with our unbelieving friends and, and we're acting just like them. And we figure, well, oh, that's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. Um, a little bit of obedience is a dangerous thing. Well, secondly... Half-heartedness not only means that a little bit of obedience is a dangerous thing, but it means being ambitious for yourself, but not for the Lord. Being ambitious for yourself. If you're half-heartedly committed to Christ, you're going to be ambitious about, about yourself. You're not really going to be concerned about what the Lord has. And Amaziah got right to work as soon as he was made king. He, he consolidated his kingdom. He assembled an army. And they marched off to battle against their enemies. And you're thinking, well, he's doing a pretty good job. But in all of this, there's no mention of him seeking God, seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's glory. He was filled with pride. It was all for Amaziah. Um, you know, you hear a lot of preachers on TV 
uh, nowadays, and, and a lot of what they say is they encourage people basically, you know, just pursue your dream. You know, that's fine given one condition. If you got your dream from God, right? Because if you're just pursuing your own dream, that's, that's a dangerous thing. Um, but if you're just out to pursue your own dream, then you're just into the, the whole lie of American success. You're not living, uh, living, you're living for yourself and not for God. And so we have to be careful with that. Um, God's glory and his purpose must be the aim of our ambition. Thirdly, half-heartedness means following human wisdom, not God's wisdom. Um, human wisdom often makes kind of sense to some degree, and sometimes it works, but it leaves God out of the, the process completely. Um, a lot of times... You know, you, you, you see here this, this, this young king, he probably asked, well, how can I build my kingdom? I'm a king now. How can I build my kingdom? And, and human wisdom answers him. What? Take a census. Gather an army. Hire mercenaries. Take counsel for war. Inflict punishment on your enemies, etc. Um, the methods worked in his battle against the Edomites, did they not? He defeated them. But there's one major problem. Amaziah never thought the Lord's mind on any of those matters. He just went out in his own worldly thought and, and thought, you know what, I'm going to do this because it works. And unfortunately, that kind of mentality has crept, up, crept into our modern-day churches today. And so you have churches with pastors who say, you know what, I just got to build a church, I just got to build a church, and I'm just going to use the latest techniques, the latest gadgets to study the target audience, set goals, and you know, advertise, recruit, work, all that stuff. And, and then just manage everything, and, and the church will grow. Well, a lot of those methods work. You'll have a big church. But if faith in God and obedience to God's word isn't at the heart of what you're doing, it's, it's all for naught. Then we're operating on human wisdom. It's all wood and stubble at best. The Lord isn't in any of that. Even if it works, what are we doing? We're just building a monument to ourselves. So we have to be careful with these things. Um, be careful when you follow human wisdom. You should always have it undergirded by principles from the Word of God. I mean, not all human wisdom is bad. So you, you have to either support it or turn away from it, depending on what the Word of God says. Uh, the fourth point here is half-heartedness means concern uh, for expedience over obedience. Look at verses 6 and 9. Uh, Amaziah here, he, he had an army, and it was good to go, basically. But what did he do? He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel. Israel was a northern tribe. They were not walking with God. They were serving idols. Um, and he actually even paid them 100 talents of silver. And so he had the ability to, to do this. And, you know, you stop and you, and you think about this. Um, it just wasn't a wise thing to do. And verse 7 says, a man from God, a prophet, came to the king and said, don't let the army of Israel go with you um, because the Lord is not with Israel. But he wouldn't listen. And um, at the end, the prophet 
the end of verse 9 there, he says, The man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And I think Amaziah was convinced, okay, uh, I guess this guy, you know, is a prophet from God, so maybe I should obey him. But I don't think he was convinced that it was right or wrong what he was doing. He didn't matter. He was just looking at the end result. Okay, if, if I listen to this guy, maybe I'll win. Um, he wasn't even concerned whether it's what God wanted or not. A um, hundred talents of silver was a pile of silver, about 9,400 pounds, they say. So it's not wrong to consider the consequences, but it's wrong to consider the consequences first. Okay? It's not wrong to consider the consequences but it's wrong to consider the consequences first. The first matter is a matter of principle. And in this case, Amaziah was unequally yoked with the northern kingdom who was serving idols. The Lord wasn't with them. So how could he be with them? That's the principle. And he missed it. Uh, Only when Amaziah had considered that was he ready to ask, well, what's it going to cost? Um, in other words, how, how is this going to work? And that's how we ought to follow Jesus Christ. First, consider who he is, who he claimed to be. Consider that first. And if he is, in fact, the promised Messiah, if he is, in fact, the Savior, if his, his life did fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that were told, and his life is full of miracles that were authenticated uh, by his claims, um, does his teaching come from God? And if he is, in fact, actually raised from the dead, and if so, we should, we should be ready to follow him because what? It's right. <laughs> he is the truth. Um, but you have to ask the question, what's it going to cost me? What's it going to cost me? And the answer is what? Everything. It's going to cost you everything to follow Christ. We don't hear that a lot today. So the question then is, is do you believe that the Lord can give me much more than I give up? Does it, does it cost you to follow Christ? Is it, do we have to sacrifice in our commitment to Christ? Yes. But can the Lord give me more? One day. If not in material goods, then at least in peace and joy and righteousness here on this earth. Um, the much more is not always material, right? So we have to remind ourselves of that. And quite often it costs us dearly to live our lives for Christ and Christ alone. But if you put the Lord first, he always makes the gain outweigh the loss. He will always do that. One occasion in the New Testament, Matthew, Peter wondered about this. He says, you know what, Lord, we've left everything and we followed you. Remember this? What then will there be for us? Peter wants to know. Okay, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to follow you. We left everything we had. What's in it for us, Lord? And Jesus replied this way in Matthew 19. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake, you could have left all that. He says, shall receive many times as much and shall inherit, what? Eternal life. In Mark's gospel, the Lord is recorded by adding that not only will we receive this 
in this age houses and family and farms, but also in verse 30, Mark 10, 30, he says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And then he says this, with persecutions. He just kind of throws it in there. By the way, you're, you're going to be persecuted too. And in the age to come, eternal life. And then that famous verse that we know so well, but many who are first will be what? Last. And the last first. But it's a good trade to give up everything you have for that, that pearl of price, who is Christ. That, that you, know, you can walk away from everything you have here earthly, but if you have your eternal um, security in Christ and in Christ alone, all this stuff down here is going to burn one day. You're not going to have your houses and your, and your cars and your iris. And it, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter at all. And so we have to be reminded of that. Fifthly, half-heartedness means being susceptible to the evils you campaign against. All right, if you're going to live for Christ in a half-hearted way, you better be careful. Amaziah, who knows about the living God, he, he defeats these pagan idolaters in battle, so he's, he's on God's side as far as that goes. But then what does he do? After he defeats them, he brings their idols back to the camp and bows down to them. That's just hard to understand in verse 14. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods, and he worshipped them, making offerings to them. This is just an incredible flip. I mean, just an incredible duplicity in this man's life. But then you say, well, what, what more would you expect? His heart's divided. <laughs> He's not truly committed to God. His heart's, his heart's divided. And Satan knows that the half-hearted believers are only half against sin. They're only half against sin. And so what does Satan do? He smiles, he bides his time, he waits, he waits, he waits for the right time. You know, that's why every so often you'll hear, and it's always horrible to hear this, but you hear even of men in the ministry who, you know, you used to listen on the radio and, preach against adultery and preach against pornography and preach against this and preach against that only to be caught up in these vices. And now they have no ministry at all. And it's like, what happened? What happened? It's always so sad. Because why? The, the world mocks God on account of those people. A man who isn't dealing with his own sin on the thought level better not get into any kind of ministry because it's it's warfare against a subtle and powerful enemy and if satan can't defeat you in open battle he'll he'll lure your lure you into his camp in other ways remember he's an angel of light he's very deceptive he feels around the rim of your life for cracks and he's waiting and he knows that if you're not following the lord completely with a whole heart He's just laughing at you while you campaign against the immorality of this world because he knows sooner or later you're going to fall to it. And then what a mockery that will be. So be careful of those evils that we campaign, campaign against if you're serving the Lord in a hard hit, half-hearted way. And then sixthly, half-heartedness means rejecting the counsel of God. 
rejecting the counsel of God in favor of the counsel of men. In verses 15 to 16, he says there, Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet. This was a gracious act by God. He was upset because he was doing the wrong thing. And I mean, God could have just stricken him dead, but he didn't. He sent him a prophet. And he said, why, why you sought the gods of the, the people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? And as this prophet was speaking the word of God to this king, he was so filled with pride. Um, you know, he basically just said, stop. Who do you think you are? You're not my counselor. You should just be struck down, he says. Um, I mean, this is stronger than following human wisdom rather than God's wisdom. Uh, it's more, that was more just going, kind of going along with the way the, the world does things, right? But the, here you have somebody who's deliberately, deliberately saying no to God's word. When you show it to him and you say, look, the Bible says you should be doing this. And they say, nope, I'm going to do the thing my own way. I know what I want and I'm going to take it. And there's a play here on the, world, the words counselor in verses 16 and 17. You see it there, counselor in verse 16. You see counsel. Verse 17, you see uh, counsel. You see, Am Amaziah didn't want to hear the counsel of God because that meant he had to deal with his own pride and his own heart, his own sin. And a half-hearted believer, a half-hearted committed Christian doesn't want to do that. Why? Because it's too threatening to them. They're, they're living a duplicitous life, and so they, they don't want to feel that conviction. So instead, what did he do? He found counselors who told him what he wanted to hear, namely to go out to war against Joash, king of Israel. But this was his eventual undoing. He would not listen to God. Proverbs 21.30 says this, There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. There's no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. And what's that mean? It means when a man rejects the counsel of God in favor of the counsel of man, um, God uses the, the, that wrong human counsel to accomplish his sovereign judgments in that person's life. We see this time and time again. I remember as a youth pastor, I would talk to young people and even as an early pastor talking to, to couples and sharing with them, look, there's certain principles you got to live by. Whether you're single, whether you're married, if you violate those principles, you're going to be in trouble. And they think, no, we're not hurting anybody. And uh, You cannot win if you go against God. It's, you're not going to come out on the winning end. That ought to be perfectly obvious to us, but people don't accept it. I mean, maybe some people like a challenge. I don't know. You know, they're going to go up against the Lord. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that bet because you're not going to win. Um, a lot of times when you counsel people, I've seen it year after year after year. You use God's word to confront their sin, whatever it might be. But they don't want to face it. They don't want to hear it. Because it means what? It means they would have to repent, right? They would have to acknowledge, you know, you're right. The Bible does say that. And I am doing what's opposite. So I need to repent and change. They don't want to do that. And so what do they do? They make excuses for their behavior. Or they go find other counselors who will tell them what they wanted to hear in the first place. Thinking that somehow that counsel from that new counselor will get them what they want and where they want to go. 
Um, but you never get to where you want to go if you're going against the Lord's direction. You, you just won't. You're just spinning your, your tires in the mud. Remember Jonah? God was pretty clear with Jonah. And he thought, you know what? No, I'm not going to go where God tells me to go. I'm going to go to Tarshish. But God had other plans, didn't he? You sure you want to disobey me, Jonah? Let's see, I'll just bring a big fish along and pretty soon you'll be spit up by this fish after a little while there and you have a change of heart back up onto the beach and you're going to do exactly what I wanted you to do in the first place. It's going to take a little longer. You're going to have to go through a little more hurt and a little more pain and suffering. But you know what? I'm going to win this battle every time. And that is, that is such a, a, a so clear throughout Scripture. Whenever you see people violating God's word, there's always some form of judgment. There's always some form of negative consequences. And yet somehow, as believers in this life, we think somehow because we're under grace that we'll get away with it. You can't. You will not win if you go against the Lord. And then the seventh thing here, half-hearted commitment means falling prey to pride. We see this is very evident in, in Amaziah's life, don't we? Amaziah starts thinking, you know what, I'm pretty hot stuff here as this new king. You see how I dealt with those Edomites? I wiped them out. And so what does he do? He, he challenges this, this Joash. This is not his father. This is another name by, guy by the same name in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was king of Israel. And he says, you know what, I'm going to challenge you now to a showdown. And Joash, it's, it's kind of confusing the way he answers there. He answers with an with a allegory, basically. Um, he says, you know what? You're just a little thorn bush, <laughs> Amaziah. You're just a little thorn bush compared with me as a mighty cedar tree. You're going to get trampled. Don't do it. That's basically what he meant. Well, most people would listen to that kind of counsel, but not Amaziah. That eggs him on even more. I'll show you, you know. Uh, it's like the guy, uh, what was that movie? There was an uh, English-British movie, and the guy was on the bridge. And he kept on losing his limbs or cutting his limbs off. And pretty soon there's nothing left to him. And he's still fighting. You know, it's like, okay, you're not going to Monty Python or something. You're not going to win this battle, pal. You know, but this is what Amaziah does. He just, it just eggs him on. And he goes to battle against this king. And he gets wiped out. Apparently he's so badly crippled that the king of Israel didn't even kill him. He thought, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not being kind by letting you live, but you're so badly hurt. I'm just going to let you be this, this frail individual on your throne. You're no threat to me anymore. And that would be more of an embarrassment if, unless I was killed you and you became kind of a, a, you know, a warrior, known as a warrior. And so what did he do? He tore down 600 feet, basically, of the, the wall facing to the north, and he left Amaziah there. And he never, this king never recovered his power. For more than 15 years, more than half his reign, he's powerless. He's not able to do anything. Pride goes before a fall. A person who is not wholeheartedly for the Lord is not judging his sin. The only way to avoid pride is to deal with the sin which so easily besets us. And half-hearted commitment results in 
inevitable ruin. We've seen the half-heartedness. Well, let's look at the resulting ruin. Some of Amaziah's ruin was immediate, but just like consequences of sin, some of it took a while to flesh itself out. Uh, God's judgments don't always follow swiftly by our reckoning, but they do follow inevitably. When you violate God's word, there will be consequences. You may have gotten away with it before. You may have gotten away with it several times. Eventually, it will catch up with you. It may take a while for the seeds sown to the flesh to spring up and to produce corruption, but the crop never fails. Number one under here, immediate results. God's people were defeated and defenseless. Think about it. You're the leader of this group of people, and you recklessly take them into a battle that doesn't even have to happen. I mean, we see some of this really in our own government at times. Just a lack of leadership. And the, the disconcern with anybody else and the reckless decisions that are being made and how it's affecting millions of people. But because they live in a bubble, they don't care. They don't have to pump gas in their, their tanks. They don't have to defend themselves with their guns. They got people to do that for them. Look at what it says in verse 23. And Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, and son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall and seized all the gold and silver and the vessels that were found in the house of God, and seized the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Now think about it. You have a city that has a wall around it for a reason, right? I mean, just like... We should have a wall on our southern border for a reason, right? Why? Because without something, we're defenseless. We're defenseless. It's funny how all these politicians are so against the wall, but boy, as soon as they build their million-dollar mansion, what do they do? They build a wall. Why? Because they want to be defended against. All you got to do is go down here and drive around Atherton. Million-dollar house after million-dollar house. What do they got? They got walls around them. Why? To protect them. Well, here... The king of Israel ripped out a 600-foot hole in the wall, and it was defenseless. Jerusalem and the southern kingdom could not be maintained as strong under these conditions. Some of the people, it says, were taken as hostages. The few items of gold and silver that were left in the temple and the king's house, which Joash had not lost to the Syrians or which Amaziah had may have restored, they were taken. They were left with nothing. And the worship life of God's people basically bottomed out at this point. There was, there was nowhere to worship. They, they were constantly looking over their shoulder. When's the next raid going to come? Because there was no protection. And their leader couldn't do anything about it. And so we see half-hearted commitment always weakens the entire entity, whether it's a kingdom, whether it's a church, especially when the half-heartedness is in the leadership itself. Well, what were the long-range results? Wasted years and really a pointless death of, a death of this man. His power was gone. His riches were gone. His army was defeated. In the last 15 years, more than half of his 29 as king 
were basically lame duck. They were futile. They were wasted. When did it start? When Amaziah turned from following the Lord, it gave rise to discontent, which eventually led to conspiracy among the people. The very thing he tried to prevent. Remember when, as soon as he became king, what did he do? He executed all the people that killed his dad. He was trying to do the right thing. He fled to this stronghold city of of Lachish on the Philistine border there. But even that couldn't protect him. Because what? The Lord wasn't protecting him. The Lord was carrying this plan out. So he was murdered. He was carried home. He was buried. That was his life. His heart was not fully for the Lord. There is a positive side here, and I didn't put this in your outline. I don't think that there is a positive side. While half-hearted commitment results in inevitable ruin, the other side of that is what? Full commitment results in eternal rewards. When you're fully committed to the Lord, you're on the winning side. Um, In just about every one of the stories of these kings, there's a, a group of men who come on the stage, say their piece, and then they disappear again. Who were they? They were the what? The prophets, right? The prophets. Such as Hanani, Micaiah, Jehu, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. They're all named. But in other cases, such as here in chapter 25, we don't know who they, these guys were. There was two incidents where a prophet came before the king. We don't know if it was the same prophet or not. But I always wonder what these prophets did when they weren't profiting, (laughs) when they weren't doing their their assignment by God. I mean, it's it's almost as if God kept them in the, the garage somewhere, you know, out in the field somewhere. Always kept them ready to roll at a moment's notice. Like Clark Kent, hanging out in the phone booth, right? (laughs) After they do their job, if they don't get killed, which a lot of them did, but if they don't get killed, what do they do? They go back and they wait for the next assignment. Okay, God, what do you want me to do next? Who's the next king you want me to talk to? I mean, it was a very hazardous occupation. Um, Zechariah had been stoned to death by Amaziah's father, Joash. That's why Amaziah reminds his, this nameless prophet in, in chapter 25 about that incident in verse 16. He said, hey, do you want to be struck down too? Remember what happened to the guy that came up against my dad? I mean, I'm sure these prophets had a hard time getting any form of life insurance. But they were God's men. They were totally committed to him. They were available. And they were even expendable. Lameless to us, we didn't know who they were here in this, in this instance, but they're known to God, and one day we'll probably meet them in heaven. But they stand in stark contrast to King Amaziah's life. They were fully committed to serving the Lord. They were willing to give up their lives for the Lord. I mean, Amaziah was more famous than them. For a while he had more power than them. He had more riches than them. But these courageous prophets knew 
life as it is meant to be lived. When they pass from this earth as kings, prophets, and commoners all must do, these committed men, I have no doubt in my mind, these, these prophets who were committed to God heard what the Lord said in, in Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, to call Amaziah a king who's half-hearted isn't really technically correct. Because Satan doesn't need half of your life to gain entry and bring you to ruin. He doesn't need half of your life. He only needs a little single sliver where you refuse to let Jesus be your Lord. If you give everything to Jesus except that one area, trust me, that's enough for Satan to, to pull his, his game on. I read a story this past week of a Haitian pastor who told this story to illustrate a, a certain point. And he said a certain man wanted to sell his house for $2,000. And another man wanted it very badly. He wanted to buy it, but he was poor. Uh, he couldn't afford the full price. And after much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell him the house for half the original price with just one stipulation. He would retain, retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the doorway to the house. And after several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out. He found the carcass of a dead dog, and he hung it from the single nail that he still owned over the man's doorway. And the story goes, soon the house became unlivable. <laughs> and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail on his terms. And the Haitian pastor concluded this. He says, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. Polls tell us that fewer than 10% of believers could be called deeply committed. But full commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for you, is the only way to go. Half-hearted Christianity is not an option. It's just a, it's a facade. You're not going to win in the end living that way. I'm sure Amaziah thought he would gain happiness and success going the way he went. But half-hearted Christians really are afraid of full commitment because they think that it will result in a dreary and difficult and boring life. But we just have to remember what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. He said, whoever wishes to what? Save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his wife, life, his wife, his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. So 
hopefully this is a good lesson for us and just you know we, we live in troubled times and our commitment to the lord is being questioned every day if not literally at least in our own minds and our own hearts and so we need to just double down and, and go full bore on our commitment for christ amen amen father we thank you for your word tonight lord we pray that you would help us to apply uh, the life of amaziah and some of the principles that we learned here tonight about being half-hearted and uh, lord i pray that um, if there's any here who has yet to put their faith their trust in christ fully and in, in, in alone uh, lord i pray that you would draw them to you that you would show them their need they uh, that they would just give up trying to figure this thing out and and be willing to surrender that's what we're called to do and father we pray that you would uh, uh, save them that you would show them their need of a savior and help them to repent and turn to you we think of loved ones and family members maybe that we know who are not christians we pray that our lives would be lived in such a way that we are a light to them that we are salt in this world and that we do affect change in people's lives because of our bold and full commitment to christ and christ alone and lord it's not a popular stand to to, to take today but lord uh, we pray that you would just uh, uh, minister your grace in our lives as we work, live in a world and work in a world that is really anti-christ in so many different ways and so we know we'll have opposition. We know we'll have uh, persecution and suffering. Um, and if we don't, we're probably not living fully for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd renew our hearts in this way. Dismiss us with your blessing tonight. Help us to get safely home. Uh, and uh, just uh, give us a, a good remainder of the week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.